I think it goes back to selling something that you're passionate about. The reason that I enjoyed selling Chanel, I mean, well, it's Chanel. Like, you know, that's enjoyable. The other part is I'm a competitive person. And so if I could see that my targets and my numbers are really high, then I get even more motivated. And then I think also when you're working in beauty, as an example, fragrances, I think you kind of realize that the best sales come from where you get. Nobody wants to feel like they're being sold to. It's such a when you're going in to buy something like makeup, but not everybody enjoys it. They kind of feel a bit vulnerable. And if you can go in and just have a chat with people, they can feel comfortable. You end up selling a lot more. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 56 of the So This Is My Why podcast. I'm your host and producer, Lingya. And before introducing today's guest, I'd like to say a small apology for the seven month of that sense. Unfortunately, I got hit with COVID, but thankfully, that's all over and we're back on schedule. For today's guest, we have Emra Naidu, co-founder of Accelerating Asia, which is an early stage venture capital fund that runs programs for startups and investors and general partner Accelerating Asia Ventures. We learn about how she went from Zimbabwe to Australia and how she transitioned from selling Chanel to being head of corporate partnerships at UN Women in Singapore and how she eventually ended up entering the VC space. So are you ready to learn more? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. I understand that your mom is Chinese from Hong Kong and your father is Indian. So how do you end up being born and raised in Zimbabwe? Yeah, wow, you've done your research. <laughs> my dad was born in Zimbabwe and my mom actually met in London. So they were next door neighbors. I think that's so cute. Like if there was ever such a love story that could get any cuter, I don't think it's that, right? Yeah, so they met in London. They spent a few years there. They then went to Hong Kong, spent a few years working there. And then decided to move back to Zimbabwe where my dad is from and start their life there. And that's where I came along. That's my brother came along as well. You were there until the age of 13, right? Yeah, that's right. I remember a lot of it and have really great memories of what it was. Obviously, it's very different now because of the political situation. And it's part of the reason why I haven't gone through something that that I do have such good memories about it that I know it's going to be a huge shock. At some point in my life, I do want to go back and I do want to see if there is anything that I can do there. I still have a bit of an attachment to the place. Unlike my brother, I think he was a little bit too young when we left, so he doesn't like And was it a huge shock to move to Australia? Yeah, it was a huge shock. <laughs> it was a massive change. I think when I first got there, Especially at that age, I think you don't really comprehend that you're leaving it potentially for good. And when I was growing up, I was fortunate enough to travel a lot when I was young. And so in my mind, it was just like another holiday. We got to Australia and then you're there for like a couple of weeks. Still good. You're there for a couple of months. Still good. And then you start school and it's okay. But then it starts to get to a point where you're like, okay, when are we going to grow now? When is the holiday over? And I think that's when it really hits you. But yeah, it was a massive difference. I mean, 
one of the reasons why well, my dad says that he chose Australia and the Gold Coast in particular as a place to move to was because he said the weather was like Zimbabwe, which it's not. And it's completely different. I mean, there's the beach, right, on the Gold Coast. Mum is a landlocked country. And there's so much different about it. Was it hard to assimilate in terms of culture as well and race? I think you were the only brown-skinned person as well in your school for a while. Yeah, yeah. I, I always joke with people that I didn't know I was brown until I got to Australia. But it's true because I think you don't really, especially as a kid, pay attention to the color of your skin or anything like that. And then going to Australia, especially at the time when we first got to the Gold Coast, it wasn't as multicultural as it is now. I mean, now there are people all over the world working on the Gold Coast than it was and it's more popular in some of the other bigger cities in Australia. And I think also in particular, our family looks a bit strange, right? So you're not used to seeing people who are like brown, let alone like, oh, there's a Chinese woman, there's an Indian man, and then like those kids, they're a bit different. <laughs> and then you're going to like a little town outside of the Gold Coast, which is even more regional. Yeah, you definitely stand out. You definitely notice that you stand <laughs> I read that since you were young, you wanted to work at the UN. I wonder when that dream started. What was it that triggered that dream? Yeah. I think it was seeing Kofi Annan do a speech, like one of his speeches, and he is probably the most inspiring speaker, right? He just captures people. He's very eloquent and gentle, I think, as well with the way that he speaks. So I think that's what initially got my attention. And I think I also was drawn to it because it was so multicultural. In my mind, like, it's the United Nations, literally everybody on the planet. And I'm very idealistic and optimistic person. So I think the idea of the UN as well just fits right in with my personality. And I'm like, wow, look at the potential of this thing. It, it could do so many exciting things for humankind. But I, I don't know when it first started. I think it was just a gradual thing. But I think I really felt it the most when I was deciding what to study, university. And in Australia, you get this book that you can flick through at all the different degrees. And then it tells you what job you have and could potentially have at the end of it. And yeah, international relations has diplomats. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> work for the UN. These are international yeah. relations, but you also had a second degree in business management, which is totally different. Yeah. How did that come about? Yeah, yeah it is different. I don't know. Consciously at the time, I don't think I realized I was hedging my bet. It was more of being indecisive and trying to please everyone, if that makes sense. So the international relations, I think, was, for me, something that I really wanted to pursue. And then the business side was kind of for my parents. And then also just, it's a safe degree in my mind. Age, I just felt a lot of pressure that whatever you study is going to be your career for the rest of your life. <laughs> and so when you're making that decision, I was like, okay, is this going to be the rest of my life? Like, let me, it's like, let me hinge my bets here. I found it so interesting that when you speak about your dream of the UN, you were clearly so passionate, so excited. But then I saw while you were at university, you were doing all sorts of things that were not aligned at all with that dream. Like you were working to sell SK2 and Shiseido and you were at agents. Like, it's so different. So how did these things come about? It's funny. I mean, I actually took a gap a couple of years 
recipe. So I did go through a bit of a down period where I was kind of questioning why am I studying what I'm studying? I think it was multiple things. It was not knowing what I was doing and why I was doing it. And I think if you don't know why you're working towards something, it's really hard to continue and to keep doing what you're doing. So that was one of the things. The other thing is I'm definitely going through a down period of just not knowing anything about myself and not being confident in myself and going through a really down period. And I would say it's depression. I think there's a lot of preconceived ideas about depression. I think at some point, everybody is going to go through a down period in their life. And it doesn't define you or anything that you do. And so that was my period for me. And I think the, the third factor was studying international relations. You basically see all the horrible parts of humanity. Like I went into studying this degree with obviously a very idealistic idea of what was going to come out from it. I ended up studying about wars and why, you know, it's like different types of political issues and human rights treaties and things like that. And obviously when you're studying international law and human rights law, you're obviously looking at all the bad things that actually get as part of that as well and reason for they're coming about. And so I think I got very motivated. <laughs> about that. So yeah, I ended up taking a break, dropping out of university for a couple of years, figuring out, okay, what am I going to do next? And I remember just, you know, scrolling for something interesting that I could be doing. And I came across this job ad, which was looking for brand ambassadors for different brands. And I went into the interview and it was like a group interview setting. And they were like, okay, as part of the interview process, you need to tell me something that you have with you right now. And that's basically you get the job because <laughs> you, you sell it, sell whatever you have. So everybody is selling things like their pen, their notebook that they were carrying with them. And me, literally the day before, had bought this pair of heels that I absolutely loved. It was so comfortable when I was wearing them to the interview because I was just feeling so good about it. <laughs> And so I got up and I was like, well, I want to sell you my heels. And I went into like all the benefits of my heel. I'm really high. I'm short person. Got all that weekend strap so you can write super comfortable. Made of leather so you can write. Basically got the job on the spot. And it ended up being something that I turned out I absolutely enjoy. Connecting with people and not necessarily, I guess, the selling part in terms of you doing it after a while becomes a bit boring, if that makes sense. Like you're not fully passionate about what you're selling. But yeah, during that time, it was great. So I got free alcohol, got free makeup. It was a fun job. I got to go to nightclubs and work, you know, different alcohol brands. It was great for that period. <laughs> <laughs> so after that period of time, what was it that triggered a change? I mean, I stayed in that job for a few years. Ended up working out from being a brand ambassador to managing the state to Queensland, so managing all the other brands. And that was great. I mean, I got to work with some really awesome brands, not just in terms of selling them, but understanding how they market things, managing the accounts and relationships with people as well. A lot of project management and logistics, like especially executing these are like on the ground marketing. So I learned a lot. But I, it got to a point where that job was insane. <laughs> so during the week, you have all the beauty and cosmetic type promotion. And then over the weekend and during the evenings, you have all the FMCG, like alcohol type promotion. So essentially, 
you're working 24 seven because you'd have to manage all of that. And in my early twenties, I was managing 200 staff across the day. And these are all casual staff. So they can for you five minutes before the start of their shift and be like, oh, I'm sick. I can't go. And towards the end, one of my breaking points, this guy called me. It was literally five minutes before the start of his shift. Said, I'm going to have the right time for my shift. Like he's meant to be wearing white pants. Out of all of the UK, any other pants? Blue, black, no. <laughs> like, what do you say to that? And I think also when you're young, early twenties, you don't have the confidence to be like, "This is your job." You know, you signed up for the shift. You're going to the shift, and I just had a bit of a. I think was that was a breakdown. <laughs> it was just like I've had enough of this. Also, I think with the hours, it was oftentimes us family at the back of the room, friends, engagement parties, birthdays, and things like that, like always on my phone, coordinating different trips and things like that. Yeah. So it got to a point where it was just too much. And then I started to rethink about, okay, we need to do something else. I need to get out of this environment. Apart from all of those little things that were happening, we had this big Justin Bieber promotion. I will always remember this. Every time I see Justin Bieber or anything, I will always remember this. He didn't have enough t-shirts for all the brand ambassadors to go around. It's not just a stupid problem, but it ends up being such a big thing. We didn't have enough t-shirts to go around, and so everybody had to swap t-shirts. So someone was always branded when they're working at it. And the people who were promoting Justin Bieber happened to see one of the South members in my state didn't have a Justin Bieber shirt. Because we didn't coordinate switches quick enough. And it ended up being a massive problem that my boss called me from Sydney yelling at me. <laughs> and I just started crying on the phone. And I was like, oh, this is not healthy. This is not what a work environment should be. So yeah, it was all of that. It was just a breaking point. And after that breaking point, how did you figure out how to change your life? I don't think I consciously knew what I was doing time. I just knew in my gut that I needed to heal. I actually ended up going to the doctor and the doctor said, you have anxiety, you need to see a therapist. And I tried like on and off, like school counselor and all that kind of stuff, but never really enjoyed therapy in any way. I felt like they just created more problems than they solved. But I think my gut knew I was out of breaking. Needed help. And so I remember coming out of the doctor's office, and right there, right next door, was a psychiatrist. And I literally just walked into the office, and the lady there behind the counter, I just started grilling her all these questions like, how do I know if I can find the right one? All the questions that probably would have never asked before. And after that very 10 minute grilling, I was like, okay, I think, yeah, I think I'm going to come to place and it turns out she was the owner of it and so I ended up like signing up with her and she was I think made the biggest impact on my life and still does and make a lot of the things that she taught me I still do so yeah I think that that is what kick-started it and then also knowing in my gut that I needed different work environments and then also kind of realizing that I think I'm ready to go back to university and finish that off and just get the piece of paper. I think at that mind, I shifted my perspective to away from it being like a massive career decision that I'm making after having some work experience under my belt to the university degree just being a piece of paper that's going to open doors for me. And that was the motivation that I needed to just get back into it. 
And when you got that piece of paper, did it help you to open the doors that you wanted? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I'm in Singapore because of that piece of paper. 17-year-old me literally chose that university because they had nice trees on campus. <laughs> That's crazy. It turns out that the being that I needed to get you have to have graduated from a university that ranks in 100 globally. And my university did, thankfully, which is how I ended up getting my visa here initially. So that visa you're talking about, it's for the UN internship that you applied for, which would last for three months. How did the idea of applying for an internship come about? One of my friends, he's Singaporean and he's living in Brisbane and he was moving back to Singapore. And he was like, you know what? I'm not going to love Singapore. heard me come to So I was like, yeah, that's a good idea. What have I got to lose, right? So I ended up like researching and reaching out to a lot of people here. Was it like to live in Singapore? Before that, I'd only been here a short stopover. So I didn't really know much about Singapore before that. And one of my friends from college was living here and she got back to me and said, you and women has internships. The best way to get a job in Singapore is to actually be here. Why don't you apply for the internship? And then if you get it, you come here and network while you're here. Hopefully you get it. I read that once you got the internship, they actually told you, full disclosure, you are not going to get a job after this. How did you feel? Because yeah. that was your ultimate aim. You wanted a job. Yeah, I think it was initial disappointment because you always hope. Back in your mind, you're always hoping. But it was a conversation that I actually had with my then boyfriend, now husband. And this was also while I was trying to decide whether I come to Singapore or I stay in Australia because, you know, there was a stipend of the internship. It's a really small stipend and I was intrigued or saving. So we had a discussion about it and he said to me to look at the worst case scenario. And in that particular scenario the worst case scenario for me is that okay I go for the internship it ends after three months nothing happens and so I end up having to go back to Australia I pointed probably two through savings so I need to live with my parents and then I need to find another job and I need to find a job quickly and it's probably going to be a job that I don't really like but I was already in a job that I didn't like and I really like my parents so living with them is not a problem and so it was kind of like okay well I'm comfortable with my worst case scenario and so he's like if you're comfortable with your worst case scenario you can do whatever you want and that has really impacted how I make all of my decisions now so yeah that, that's exactly what happened so I moved over here I'm actually really excited about the three-month internship because I'm like when I remember my first day, I turned out, I think it was like 9 a.m. on the dot, like standing out there, ready to go, so excited, knocked on the door, nobody's there because office only opens at 10 a.m. Such like when you're around the neighborhood and you live in Singapore, you are this tablet, everything literally opens at 10 a.m. But yeah, <laughs> that's kind of out. Was the internship everything you thought it would be? Yeah, it was. I think it was more than what I thought it would be. I had no idea what I was getting into when I signed up for the internship. It was my first exposure to the whole social entrepreneurship world. And so I was really excited by all of it. And I see all of these different solutions that all of these entrepreneurs all over the world are creating 
different types of business models or different models for running an organization and all the different types of social issues that they're solving as well. I think it was the part of what motivated me to be interested in the whole UN and international relations thing. Like I found that in the full social world. So it was more than what I expected it to be. So how did you end up that you were there for a three-month internship? You end up spending just over three years and you were also the head of corporate partnerships at the UN. Yeah. So what happened was when I had applied for my internship, you're right, they said, there's no chance you're going to get a job here. Typically, only bringing new grads, it's interns, and it's really little. Fine, fine, doesn't matter. I'm just going to use it through constant network to live my life. So, a month into my internship, my manager resigned, and I already had a lot more work experience than the other interns. And so, yeah, I applied for the role. And I mean, not from being the one who is already kind of working on projects, understanding the role, I was probably the cheapest option. <laughs> because they hired for someone quite senior, right? And I was just like, coming in, undercutting the competition. <laughs> One of the big things that you were in charge of is this thing called Project Inspire. Can you share a bit about what that is? Yeah, so Project Inspire was a global social entrepreneurship program for women and girls around the world. So we were looking, we were looking for solutions from all around the world that were impacting women and girls differently. I did have a, a little bit of a skew towards financial inclusion, financial literacy, but the program was in partnership with MasterCard. It was also a youth program. So we were looking for people between 18 to 35. I think I ran it for about three years. It became such a massive competition by the end of it. We had a, a boot camp part of it as well. So basically you get thousands of applications coming in. Similar to I just what I'm doing now, an evolution of what I'm doing now. But you get a lot of applications, read the applications, Bring over the finalists, run them to reboot camp, the pitching competition, with $25,000. And there are some other grants as well. It was exciting. It's a lot of hype as well. And I think for many of these people, like the entrepreneurs that we were working with, many of them were women and from emerging markets as well. This would be their first time in Singapore. A lot of them, we have to coordinate all of the logistics of getting a passport. How do they get to the airport? And then landing in Singapore, all big thing for them. So I think that's something that I always remember and that always brings a smile to my face. It's just how exciting it all was. You said massive. Under your stewardship, the program went from eight to over 109 new geographies that were involved in the project. How do you manage to expense so rapidly in three years? We had a really great team. <laughs> That's for sure. We had a really great team of people who were super passionate about this as well. We also rolled out a couple of new things to test out. One was accepting applications in different languages. That was difficult, like really difficult logistically to do because you need to essentially translate everything out of it when we said we were going to do it. We didn't realize logistically how much translation you actually have to do and for it needs to continue through the entire part of the program where you can't just accept applications in one language after go through the entire process. The thing that was one, the second thing was we brought on country ambassadors. So our team is a really small team headquartered in Singapore and there was no way that we can really be on the ground 
and scout for these social entrepreneurs, spread the word about what we're doing. And effectively, it's someone who was already there and that was already there. So we recruited country ambassadors who were people who were super passionate about the whole social entrepreneurship space. And maybe they didn't qualify for what we were doing. They were kind of embedded in the community and happy to refer people in. But it grew to such a big program that we had country ambassadors who were doing media interviews on behalf of us in their home country. They were hosting streaming parties. So when we would live stream the finals of the event and someone from their country would be in the finals pitching, they'd have this whole event where they could watch the whole thing. So I think that's kind of what you really realize is that, especially in the space that I'm working in right now, $25,000 doesn't seem like a lot of money, but it is a lot of money. For a lot of people, it's a lot of money. And when you see how it can make a difference in people's lives, it spurs you on, it gets more motivated to do more. And one of the features I was most intrigued by was in 2015, you launched the crowdfunding campaigns. How did the idea come about and how did the UN help the founders to launch this? I mean, that one came about because we thought that, well, I mean, there was a couple of reasons. One was we had quite a big audience. And so we were thinking that apart from just watching the live stream and things like that, it's not really based to engage with what we're doing if you're not a social entrepreneur, basically but you're interested in what they're doing. And then, so that was kind of the reason is, can we get some of these people to help fund some of the programs as well? The second thing was, we always had, I think it was about 20 companies. They're not all going to make it through to the finals. They're all not going to make it through to the final. But at least we can give them something that they can go away with, even if it's like $4,000, it's going to make a big difference in what they're doing for their projects. And so at least the top 20 can get something out of the whole process. So the whole idea was to create more impact for more people. So yeah, I think it worked well. Based on your observation, what were the most successful techniques to run crowdfunding campaigns? After running those crowdfunding campaigns, I had a lot of respect for people I'd raise on crowdfunding campaigns because it is so much work and you really don't realize how much work it is until you actually get it. I think a successful one had everything to do with how you communicate your story and how you present your story as well, what platform you're using. But yeah, I think the, the most successful ones that I've seen were ones that were able to effectively use a lot of different marketing channels in order to promote message. And they had planned it out, like really strategized how they're going to do this. So it wasn't just, I'm going to upload a bunch of pictures, help you work, use the money, or and then I'm going to click live, go live with it. But it was more of, I'm going to rally my audience. I'm going to put that a bunch of content for, during, and after. I'm going to do update messages and the be really appealing to offer to people who are potentially funding as well. It's a huge campaign. And we did part of the work in terms of, we had a toolkit everyone got sent about how to run it, what content to create, things like that. And obviously they've got the leverage of UN Women and MasterCard Network as well. And when you're all launching at the same time, you also have the network. Someone else's audience might be more interested in what you're doing. So you really amplify it in that way and track the algorithms with social media as well. But if you're just doing it by yourself, it's a lot of planning. It's all planning and marketing is the most important. Do you feel like that marketing was one of the biggest struggles that these entrepreneurs face? Like, what were you observing about them? Yeah, so I think 
Marketing is one thing, but I think it also depends on what the project was, right? Or the business was, because some of them didn't need the kind of marketing that we would be using for crowdfunding. They're only trying to do it because after what was required in order to raise the funding. But if in working with micro entrepreneurs, girls from slums, or things like that, it's obviously a different type of marketing or even skill set that you require to bring people on board and get them full excited about what you're doing in mind with your mission as well. But the biggest thing that I saw, which part of the reason that I ended up moving on from Project side was a lot of the entrepreneurs were coming to us looking for funding for tech solutions. And every time we look at these proposals, we're looking at them saying that nobody on the team has the skill set in order to build these tech solutions or even know if it is the right solution for what they're trying to do. And I think also there is a lot of hype about tech for tech's take, right? Like sometimes you don't need a high-tech solution for a problem. And so, but it's just kind of the sexy thing does attract something it does get people excited. And everyone wants to be involved in something that's new, not necessarily the old way of doing it. So that was one. We saw a lot of application on solutions. The UK's for it or the justification or the skill set of the team was just not there. And then the second thing was, I mean, even though we call it as a social entrepreneurship program, I learned that social entrepreneurship means different things to different and also means different things, like depending on where you are in the world. And so it becomes a massive, I guess, range between all profit businesses that are donating a percentage of their profits to a cause all the way to a nonprofit who happens to be making handcrafted bracelets and selling them. But it doesn't obviously form the entire operation of the nonprofit. And so all of these different types of organizations, everything in between social enterprises. And how do you judge them all using the same lens, right? It's $25,000 for a for-profit business. Then you start asking the question, well, why do they need the $25,000? Surely if they're already profit generating, they could use that to be found or whatever, whatever. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you get a question about, okay, but we give her $25,000. In six months time, they're going to be coming back to us asking for more money because it's not a sustainable organization. So you end up having a lot of issues with judging all of these type models. And then you start looking at, okay, well, what is the cause that they're working on? Maybe the particular cause that they're working on, you can't be a for-profit business model. Like there are some social issues that it's just not appropriate to have a business that is solving that problem and it should be a non-profit. So then you start looking at that and starting to try and compare it and it just becomes like lady like surface level things here, but it becomes really overwhelming. But I think the thing that most of these founders had in common was they were coming from a place of the cause. They super passionate about the issue that they were solving, but they didn't think about how do I make this sustainable? They had no business acumen. They were just kind of Solving the problem, which is great. And you really need people like that. But yeah, I think it was kind of like there are other models that could make this so much more sustainable and scalable that we kept looking at these organizations like must be another way that you don't have to keep coming back asking for money. It's something that we could be doing better. 
Do you think that after a couple of years of dealing with people like that, you thought you could be more effective outside the UN? Is that what instigates you leaving a place you had dreamt of joining? Yeah, <laughs> I think it's that. But I think it's also realizing that you don't do well in bureaucracy. I think everything that happened with Project Inspire was because I had full control over that and we could keep testing new things. MasterCard were a great partner for us. Uh, and we were very encouraging about all the, the new things that we were trying out. And so essentially we were operating in a little bubble outside of the rest of the infrastructure. So that was really exciting. But I think it got to a point where as I think it has to be other morals for this. And I think it was also a point in time they were looking for a lot of founders coming up looking for funding solutions. And that was a point in time where I started to be more in the whole startup world. I was going to startup conferences and it was also when the whole big dating app boom thing was happening. And so at UN Women, we kept getting startups coming to us and saying, hey, you're UN Women, you must have women. We need more women on our app. Like, I have this idea of startup founders being like, oh my God, like who are these people? They have no idea what they're doing. And yeah, so I ended up going to some more startup conferences, just seeing what was out there. The idea was maybe we could like combine two worlds in some way. And I remember, I think was, I went to an E27 conference. It was my first E27 conference that I went to. And I went down the startup alley and they had all of these dating there. And like literally, you go to one booth, like, hey, I'm a dating app, I'm a date app, okay, next one, hey, I'm a dating app, Thailand, okay, next one, hey, I'm a dating app, I'm in Thailand. Do you realize there's a dating app in Thailand right next to you? Yeah, 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 but we can do gifts or something like that. So we're different. And I think I, I realized at that point that in the startup world, there's so many passionate people who want to create things and they have the skill set in order to create and write scale things and I guess the willingness to find a way, a way of making it sustainable. And I'm thinking to myself, can you imagine if we put these people who obviously want to create something with people who already have a problem and put them together, <laughs> you can make some really cool things. But I think that's kind of what got me more involved in the startup world. And I guess motivated me to see how I can be a part of it in some way. So how did you wanting to be a part of the startup world lead you to wanting to a marketing degree at the University of Newcastle. But to be fair, you were a puppet accelerator as well, so your feet were still in it. Yeah, yeah. So that was me hedging my best. <laughs> it was a part of me that still wanted to work in you know, the development world in some way. Social impact is something that I'm just so passionate And I ended up leaving that UN world and moving over to Telstra who were running a program, startup program called Buridi. And the idea there for me was learn as much as I care about the whole startup world, about startup accelerators and things like that. And maybe I can force impact on the startups in some way and like see how that goes. And I also had a lot of people who were like, oh, you really are good to like, the folk world, you're going over to the dark side, things like that. And so it kind of also made me question, why do people think that it's dark side? Arguably, corporates have the most amount of power and potential for good, positive impact. If all of the people who are thinking about social impact stuck in nonprofits, 
not earning enough money because honestly, the salaries there in the nonprofit world are terrible. And I can go on a whole rant about how the nonprofit model is just like not working. <laughs> but it made me think, like, why is that world perceived to be so bad? And so that was kind of what I was trying to do is see how can I take the best parts from that world and the stuff that I'm really passionate about and see if I can put it together in some way. So I didn't have the info. Like I was just there because I was learning and trying to experience something different. And doing my master's in marketing, that was because you get to a point in the development world that if you don't have your master's, you can't advance, you can't move up. And so that was me hedging my bet, saying, well, at least I'll get my master's at the same time. And it's a master's in marketing because, well, I can do marketing with my eyes closed. <laughs> so at Rudy, that's where you met Craig, who's now your co-founder. How did that happen? Honestly, I don't remember the first day that I met Craig. I mean, I remember like the end of my first day. The only reason I remember that is because I took a selfie outside the logo and I found that I was on the wall. Yeah, I mean, we had very different roles. So Craig at Rudy was the entrepreneur in residence. He was working with Eric with the startup, doing all of the coaching. My role was community and operations. So it was really making sure the whole machine functioned and then using my own marketing skills to kind of spread the word about what we were doing in all of the markets around the region. So yeah, we had very different roles, but very complementary as well. Opposites, right? Complete opposite. And so Moody ended up shutting down. And it's one thing to have been working together, another thing to decide, I want to start something together. So how was that transition? Yeah. How did the idea of accelerating Asia come about? Well, I think it's funny because, like you said, one thing working together, Melbourne Beach, starting a business together, we only really knew each other as co-workers. Like you socialize, but you don't really socialize. You don't really share like parts of your personal life or anything like that. You go for after work drinks and then you go home. Like you don't talk about anything else. So we were definitely, our relationship was definitely as co-workers. And so starting a business together was kind of in response to the feedback that we got as Rudy was shutting down. A lot of VCs, a lot of startups, and a lot of mentors who were very close to the Rudy program reached out to us and were like, how about this thing die? We actually went out and tried to see if the original idea was, okay, if, if Tal should leave me, maybe we could find someone else. But another part that's probably like take over the entire fruit. And then as I guess our friend was burning out and kind of realized it's just not feasible. A transaction that size to go through is just, it's not possible. Like the corporate world moves way too slow, <laughs> you know, for things like that. And so then we started to think about, well, what if we did this ourselves? And I go back to the worst case scenario thing that my then husband said was, the worst case scenario, applying for jobs and everything, we're probably going to be working as an innovation team. I have an idea of what your career trajectory is going to be. I mean, we don't know what's going to happen if we start up accelerating. So we could just try it. We gave ourselves six months to just see. And if it did work out, we'd forget about it and go find jobs. So yeah, we were on a timeline. <laughs> and, and that's essentially how we started. We got to know each other pretty quickly during that six-month period. What you guys ended up doing was to create an independent startup accelerator, which you have described as well as the missing middle. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So the missing middle, it's funny because I actually got that phrase from the development world. And it's funny because it actually applies to the startup world as well. There's so many parallels across the two worlds. And it's basically that there is a funding gap for social enterprises or startups. So in many markets, there's a lot of really, really early stage incubated government entrepreneurship programs, or even like on the social entrepreneurship world, there's a lot of development organizations doing absolutely program. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we have all the institutions. So in the startup world, you have all the venture capitalists who are investing big ticket sizes, at least 500k, but typically much, much more. In the development world, you also have the institutions, the Bill and Melinda Gates of the world who are investing large money. And in the middle, you have all of these organizations that are past the stage of doing that early stage kind of thing. They're not at the stage where they can qualify for some of these big grants or big investment dollars. I mean, one, because they probably don't meet the requirements in terms of just going through due diligence, big government instructors or anything like that. The second is that they're probably too small to even absorb that kind of money, you know, like what are they going to do with all of that money? And so, yeah, we call it the missing middle, which is there's a huge opportunity to do a lot of capacity building and you don't necessarily need to start from square one with these organizations, right? They have probably already been operating for a couple of years. There's, there's something now already. They just need to get to that. So if you can help them bridge that gap, then they've got a lot better chance of succeeding. But also because you're catching them at such an early stage that you can be part of the journey too. Virtually set them up with a stronger foundation than if they were to try to do it themselves. And what were the biggest hurdles that you faced in setting up this independent accelerator? I think you were going around and asking other people doing the same thing as well, right? What are your biggest issues? Uh, so in Singapore, there's only ever been one other accelerator program. It was JFP, and they are legendary in the, the regional ecosystem. And unfortunately, the model just didn't work for them. So obviously, when we were starting something, when we were starting Accelerator, we knew that one first organization that we're going to be compared to is them. Second is we need to go with to them, find out like what happened, what would they do differently. Obviously, a few years had passed and they had decided to shut down. And when we decided to cut up, so a lot of things have changed the ecosystem, but I think there was a lot of opportunity to learn. So yeah, I think the challenges that we face, I guess the problem is with the, an accelerated program you can't charge startups, right? Startups don't have money. And so if you're running a program for startups, you're not going to get money from that. So then the question is, well, who, who do you get money from? And how do you balance that between providing services for things that are revenue generating and also working with the startups, which I guess are your long-term bet. So we knew we needed to set up something. We set up a consulting arm and the consulting is essentially revenue generating business, the short-term cash flow that can keep everything up and running. The accelerator program is our long-term bet. We take equity in each of the startups, but we also take a program fee. And that was possible for us to take a program fee where we set up our fund. So we do take a cash program fee from the startups, but essentially it's a pass-through of the investment that gets made from the fund into the startups. And that essentially just the operation of the accelerator. How was it to set up that consultancy program? Since you were bootstrapping. 
it was the first thing we set up. And yeah, it was literally just me and Craig going out to all the contacts we knew. Like, what can we do for you? What kind of programs can we run? We didn't even really have an idea of what we could be doing on the consulting side of things. And it worked out so well that our first client was so the Australian government. They had their landing pad program and we were working with them on helping the Australian companies that were coming to or expand in the region. And that was a relationship that we had developed over a couple of years before uh, we even started our education. So they knew us really well and we knew exactly what to expect from the whole thing. And then obviously when you have a first client like that, <laughs> the second, third clients come on pretty easily. And one of the programs you run is the 100 Day Accelerator Program. What's the curriculum like? How do you think about it? Because here you have some interesting things like the one-on-one entrepreneur in residence. You still have the Highlight Startup Mastery Program in San Francisco and Silicon Valley as well. Can you share a bit about that? Yeah, so that 100-day program is our flagship program. That is the acceleration program. And all the other programs around that are all different. And then 100-day program, well, a typical week is we have stand-up at the start of the week, which is when startups in the cohort can talk about what happened last week, what they've got plans, what can we meet, any challenges were asked that they have or the other founders community or the team as well. And the idea is that you curate the stand-up so that well happy, you want it to move quickly, but you don't want 10 to 15 companies going on and on about like all of their challenges, things like that. You also want it to be a safe space so that they can be really honest about the challenges that they're facing so that you can walk them really quickly. And then you also want them to be given. So another founder is asking a question and they happen to have it in it that they volunteer themselves and kind of it becomes a whole a community. So that's stand-up. And I think stand-up is probably the highlight of the week. And then after that, they'll usually have a session, a one-on-one session with our people and residents. That could be anything, but that is a deep dive into their business and what they currently going through. It could be anything from fundraising strategies, their pitch, growth, operation, governance. The program is very tailored to startups and what the challenges they're currently facing. Typically, the startups coming to us have already been through some kind of program in their home countries. They've probably already raised angel funding. So they're not new. And if we were to go through a lot of theory-based things, it would be a waste of their time, a waste of our time. So the program is very curated and responsive to whatever is happening. We have some masterclasses. So the masterclasses are typically in the first month of the program after the whole recruitment period. We've got a pretty good idea of the challenges that startups are facing. And so the first month is kind of pre-curated as they're coming into the program. And then after that, depending on what's going on, we change it up. We have one match that raced or pretty much closed their round in the first month. So we have to change it Okay, how do you deploy? How do you hire the team? Leadership coaching for the founders as well. And then at some point during the week, we'll have kind of community events or have BC office hours. We also have the trip to San Francisco, although obviously not traveling right now. So that is open to our portfolio where we do end up going back. And then after they graduate, there is a lot of engagement we still have. For any time we have an issue, you can reach out to us. Have a new investor coming forward? Any call? Oh, so it's a combined relationship for sure. 
So you're ultimately running three separate businesses and your third one is your fun. What were the regulatory challenges that you had to start your own fund? Yeah. I mean, looking back on it now, we have, to, we have no idea what we're getting. The fund literally came about because we started consulting. We're like, okay, cool. We have a bit of cash now. We started the accelerator. And then after we started the accelerator, we're like, we should probably start a fund so we could also participate. That was how it came about. Honestly, the license and everything was pretty smooth sailing in terms of getting that. We had a BCFM license, which is designed to be a streamlined process and easy for emerging fund managers to get. The regulation is not as much as some of the other licenses. There's some limitations to it. But I think if you're just starting out, and actually most funds would qualify for against all of the the restrictions, I put that in the air quotes, but I don't think they're that much restriction. I know most funds would be fine. And you and Crete were running your first fund for the first time. How challenging was that in terms of fundraising itself, since you didn't have a track record to lean on? Yeah, yeah, I think that's the most frustrating part about fundraising was that we've been in the startup ecosystem for a long time, managed programs, helped startups and entrepreneurs for both of us a very long time. And we have an established reputation ecosystem. Uh, and obviously, after running the Eurodi program, we had experience with choosing startups that get invested in the whole investment process and kind of managing that. But in the ecosystem, there is just this thing that it's not your track record unless it's actually your money, your funds that you've actually raised. That's what counts as your track record. So when we were signing out, we were thinking about size of the fund and basically the advice that we kept getting was just raise a small fund, do it quickly, deploy it quickly, show that you have a first fund and then go on and raise your second fund and then you'll charge record so that's what we did and i'm glad that we did that because i feel like we had no idea what we were doing we were learning on the job for sure like everything from the whole paperwork process legal accounting to even just pitching lp being comfortable with answering their questions and i think for me that was a big thing that i was really uncomfortable with was pitching to potential investors in our fund because in my mind, I guess I have this idea that these people with a lot of money and you just instantly start thinking about power dynamic and you just get into kind of a negative space and then you start stuttering on your words and the whole pitch just ends up messed up. So for me, that definitely took a lot longer than I think it took me right? <laughs> to get comfortable with. But yeah, I mean, fundraising is definitely a whole different that a different process and especially fundraising for a fund is completely different than your fundraising for startup or getting a grant or things like that. What's interesting is that you said before that selling a fund it was quite similar to selling Chanel. Why is that? I think it goes back to selling something that you're passionate about. The reason that I enjoyed selling Chanel, I mean, well, it's Chanel. Like, you know, that's enjoyable. The other part is I'm a competitive person. And so if I can see that my targets and my numbers are really high, then I get even more motivated. And then I think also when you're working in beauty, as an example, or fragrances, I think you kind of realize that the best sales come from when you're 
nobody wants to feel like they're being sold to. It's such a, when you're going in to buy something like makeup, but not everybody enjoys it. They kind of feel a bit vulnerable. And if you can go in and have a chat with people, they can feel comfortable. You end up selling a lot more. I mean, one of my biggest sales, it was this guy who came in and nobody was paying any attention to him because he was a minor. So he was like, he didn't look like someone who would be part functional, right? So nobody was really paying attention to him. And I just walked up to him and was like, hey, do you need any help? And it's Christmas time. So the opportunity for the biggest amount of sales here. And he's like, yeah, I'm looking for something for my wife for Christmas. And I'm also looking for this. Oh, okay. Well, what are you looking for? He's like, I have no idea. Just like put together a, a package for me. I was like, do you have a budget in mind? No budget. So obviously I put everything in the box and created two of them. And he just like bought it and walked off with it. And I was like, <laughs> done. Yeah, done. So I think that's kind of something that I learned back then. You want to make people feel comfortable and you got to be passionate about what you're telling and never underestimate people as well. You never know where it's going to come from. And when you're doing your fundraising for this fund, I think I totally forgot that. I got really overwhelmed by these men, typically men, who have a lot of money and I'm not confident in anything to do with financials. So if they do ask me a finance-related question, I'm not going to be confident responding to it. It was completely out of my comfort zone. But I think when I kind of realize, and I think the other thing as well is, and look young, they're generally a lot older as well. So there, there's a big confidence thing there too. But I think I got over it because, well, first I got comfortable with the whole bunch thing. I wrote out a whole script of what I say during calls, like all the bullet points and mm-hmm. Make sure I have all of the answers I'm fully prepared. And I have to say, it occurs as well. Like, I would have never been able to do this in a real life meeting, right? You can't just carry all the notes and you script in there, but you can if you never world, right? Because you just have another window open and you just keep moving between the screens. So that really helped me. And then I think the second thing was be comfortable with who I am because I realized that if they don't want to invest in the fund because, I don't know, they have an issue because I look young or whatever like that, that's not my problem. That's their problem. And this is a long-term relationship as well because the life about fund is 10 years. So if they have a problem with that, they don't like me for whatever reason. I just have this thing about people like me. I always want people to like me. If they don't like me, then, oh, well, they weren't a right fit for the funds. They would have never come in and so not to take it so personally. You mentioned before that most of the people you were meeting were men. Did you feel that that lack of diversity and impact on what you were doing? You don't know. I think it's a hard question. Uh, I mean, I, I get that a lot, especially when people say to us, wow, your accelerator program, you have one of the highest rates in your numbers in our portfolio if you're looking across funds of nature. And they're like, do you do anything special? Or do you think that female founders come to you guys as you're a female founder and you're the co-founder of the organization to see you and they come? And I was like, honestly, I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea. I hope that the people who do feel like it's something that they're conscious about and they do see, especially young women who've worked to get it to the whole BC startup state, they can see that there are other people in there if that is something that they need 
in order to motivate that. But it's honestly not something that I've really looked around. Like when we were getting into the whole VC space, I didn't look around and say, okay, are there other women in there? I was just kind of in it. And then I realized, oh, I'm the only woman at this conference. Okay. You know, like it doesn't consciously think about it until I was in the scenario that, yeah, I realized. Yeah. That's really interesting for me because I was speaking with another founder of this social enterprise. He won the most prestigious social enterprise award by the UN, which was also run by former President Bill Clinton. He said after they won, and he's Malaysian, it's a pure Asian team. After they won, the next year, there was a surge of application from Southeast Asia because I said, for the first time, we see Asians winning. So it's possible we could actually apply. So it's very interesting because for him, he never even realized or thought that that could possibly have any impact whatsoever I actually did yeah I mean at the very least even though I'm not consciously thinking about it from my perspective and looking for I guess other female role models in the space if other people are I hope that I'm setting a good example and encouraging them to be part of the space as well another thing I wanted to talk about was your deal flow so you target pre-series A companies in any industry what do you mean by pre-series A? Who are you looking for? Yeah, the startup world has some funny definition. Uh, I mean, C could be anything. Series A could be anything. Essentially, what we're looking for are startups that have traction. So typically, they've got a little bit, they've got revenue coming into the program, got users at the very least, the people who are actively engaging product or service. The founders some kind of deep domain expertise in the areas they're working in. Our entrepreneur and residents mesh secrets. They have secrets. There's a reason why they're doing what they're doing. The other thing is that the why. Why are they doing what they're doing? So the stage that we're investing in is obviously so early. Anything could happen. I think the founding team is probably the most important part of the decision-making process for us we're looking at apart from the skill set, why are they doing what they're doing? Why are they so passionate about it? Especially when you see someone who doesn't have a background in that industry and running a business in that industry, you start to think, okay, why? What are they going to, like, what do they know that people in the industry don't know? And how are they going to be the ones that are doing if they don't have those industry connections or any kind of knowledge? The other thing is the founding team itself. So, do all the founders in the team have kind of the skill sets required to run business? Like, do they complement each other? Similar to Craig and I, how we're complete opposites. We're looking for that in our big team as well. And then the other thing is the relationship. How do they know each other and how long have they known each other? If things get difficult, are they going to be able to have this tough conversation with each other? And they'll come out on the other end of it as founders, friends, or whatever. Sometimes family members see a lot of husband and wife teams well great program so yeah the team's biggest part about it coachability as well so i mentioned how stand-up works obviously if you're not coachable and willing to receive feedback and you're going to go into the entrepreneur residence one-on-one sessions open mind and accelerated programs probably not for you are you going to give back to the community in some way and you're going to really be part of the whole accelerated asian community too is social impact something that you looked for at the very start or is it something that comes in after? So this is something that I learned when we were running the reading program is that the whole social impact space, despite it being woke and inclusive, all of those words, 
is not. There are so many things that exclude people from being involved in it. And one is just that if you're just looking at internship programs as an example, right, you need to be of a certain financial position in order to do an unpaid internship in a country like this, right? If we're just looking at that, like inclusion, but it's also all the acronyms that are being used. It's really difficult for people to understand how they can get involved in the whole space and what it all means. I mean, if you just look at measurements as one subset of the whole impact space, it is so confusing. Nobody knows what they're doing. There's no standard for it. Everybody's doing their own thing. So it's a very exclusive place. And so what I learned at Rudine when we were running that program is that there were actually a lot of social entrepreneurs applying to startup programs. And they were coming from the perspective of just working on solving a problem in their home country or their home city. They weren't thinking about social impact, even though social impact is oftentimes embedded into the business model itself by nature of the problems they're solving and the business models that they've created, but also by nature of where we are in the world. In Southeast Asia and in South Asia, there are so many problems that need to be solved and entrepreneurs at the book solving those problems. So all we need to do is find these entrepreneurs and then teach them about the whole social impact space. So how do you find these entrepreneurs? It's a fourth cohort now. You have 10 for each cohort and out of the 10 is from just over 200 applications, but your touch point is around over 2,000. So how do you even get that many options in the first place? You have very interesting startups from like Bangladesh and Pakistan as well. I think it's a couple of things. One is obviously the networks that we have before we've brought them over. Obviously, we've been in the space for a long time. The, the reputation of us as individuals, our team as well. We come from all kinds of different types of programs, different parts in the world. Trying to these entrepreneurs. Actually, the number of applications increased. We get on average at least 500 per cohort. So now... Fun fact, we have an acceptance rate that is harder to get into than Harvard. <laughs> it's a 2% acceptance rate. Well, it's got to do with a lot of our networks. It's got to do with our alumni as well. I guess similar to what you were saying about women or people seeing someone in positions they'd like to be in or a startup program they'd like to be in. And startups in Bangladesh see that we've invested in companies from Bangladesh. And so they apply to our program. Same with Pakistan and same with all of these other places. So that's one thing, having alumni in these countries. We have a lot of investor partners as well in these markets. So they're more fair in companies that they're currently working with or they would think are a good fit for our program. And then obviously all the traditional ways of marketing, so social media, webinars, things like as well. And in a world that you can travel, we would say, we'd be out in pretty much all of these places all the time. Given that we're speaking 2021, obviously we can't travel as we used to. I mean, what other ways has COVID impacted your space and what you're doing? Last year, there was definitely a slowdown in terms of investing. Uh, a lot of the angel investors or individuals stopped investing. They wanted to conserve their cash, uh, especially everything was going to stop market at that point in time. So, a lot of the angel money kind of dried up. And when you're looking at the institutional capital, that also kind of dried up because they were focusing on supporting existing portfolio companies as opposed to the year. So last year was a tough year to be fundraising. 
And it also was really difficult for startups who, across all industries, who were impacted by things like the lockdowns, the lack of travel, as an example. Many startups in the travel industry, not necessarily bad companies. They could have been really, really great companies, but it's just a matter of timing. And they just happen to be in the wrong place, wrong time. One thing that maybe COVID did do is the whole idea of profitability for startups in terms of a lot of investors were starting to ask questions about the business model and at what point is startup going to become profitable and taking that into consideration a lot more with their investments as opposed to before, obviously, we've seen the whole MeWork story, a whole bunch of <laughs> One of the stories where when you've got cash flying around, really easy in a way to kind of make those investments. Another thing that you are doing is that you are the host of your own podcast, Doing Good Podcast. How did the whole idea come about and how does that play into what you're doing? Yeah, honestly, it was a hobby. I started it because while I was working for UN Women, meaning all of these really incredible, inspiring people, both from the grassroots level, all the social entrepreneurs we're working with, but also top down, you know, looking after partnerships, you get an idea of how different types of organizations, social impact, CFR, and diversity, all of the people within the organization that are trying to drive these gigantic shifts to like in a different direction. And so originally it was meant to be a blog. You know, I wanted to interview all these people and just like, I get excited about talking to people. I like writing, but I'm just very conscious about all the words that I'm putting to take. I feel like when people read a blog, they're very critical about the exact words that are being said, how the information is being presented. As opposed to a podcast, you can kind of have a, a really casual conversation and it can be a bit more in the moment. So that's how a podcast came about. Down off with a hobby, literally. Just me loving talking to people and putting it out on a platform. But yeah, the whole idea is to kind of explore different ways that people can create social impact or how different people think about social impact. So the idea, many people that I meet, especially when I was working for you, you're so lucky you get to create impact as part of your, your job. And that's when I realized actually everyone can do it. There's so many different ways to incorporate it as part of your day-to-day life. And so that's kind of why I wanted to profile lots of different people doing that. The creator economy is on the rise. And it seems as though everyone is some kind of a creator. You have got like Justin Khan and Gary Tan. They're all VCs. They have their own YouTube. They have their own podcast. You've got AE16Z. They are creating their own media empire. How important is it for, say, those in the VC world to be content creators themselves and be known and heard? Well... I think it depends. I think it's important for everybody. Even for founders as well. They should put themselves out there. Yeah. Yeah. I think it depends on how you look at it, right? If everybody was just to create something, just put out a whole bunch of crap into the world, and I don't think that really benefits society in any way, right? But it depends on why you're doing what you're doing. Like I'm doing my podcast because for me, it's a hobby. If people listen to it, then great. If not, then it's a project for me. I enjoy talking to all these people. I'm learning a whole bunch of things. I hope they are too. I don't know. But the reason that I started it was selfish and it was for me. Like that's why I was doing it. And so I had no expectations about, oh my God, the website has to be perfect. Like I need to produce as many episodes and all that kind of stuff. I need to get it all of this kind of all these 
And when I first started, I was like really obsessive about all of those things. But then when I went back to it, I was like, at the end of the day, I'm doing this for me. And so just make it easy for myself. So yeah, I think that people should create, should they create YouTube channels, podcasts, blogs, pieces of art. I think they can express themselves in different ways. And not everyone is going to be a thought leader in their space, but they don't need to be. They can contribute and create other ways. And it doesn't need to be public. You were involved in the Payments Race Money Asia 2020. (laughs) How did that happen? I found your blog on YouTube and it looks like a lot of fun. You were racing through Asia and you could only use your credit card. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, you've done a lot of research. <laughs> yeah, so the payments rates is part of the Money 2020 conference. And basically what it is, is it's kind of like a mini amazing race. And each competitor has a different payment method and they can only use that payment method throughout the entire race. So I had credit cards, but also gold, Bitcoin, cash, and mobile payments. And not only do you have to travel around, but similar to amazing race, you have to do like tasks and get points they used to get people how did I get involved I don't, and I don't know it was like completely random I got a phone call from my friend one day and he was like hey the money 2020 race is on would you like to be considered for a kitchen or I was like yeah okay <laughs> how do you find an experience I, if I had to do it all over again I totally would it was a lot of fun it put me completely out of my comfort zone it was terrible timing, though, I have to say, because I had a big work trip in the U.S. right before it. So it was like two weeks in the U.S. It was also time that we had a lot of stress because we knew that the Meridi program was coming to an end. We were planning out what was going on with Accelerate Asia. So it was just a lot of stress that went into time. I was also doing my master's at that time, and it was exam time. I had three assignments that I needed to submit. And so I landed back in Singapore for like literally five hours, unpacked all my stuff from the US and then started the race. It was jet lag, so you turned five. And I was trying to finish my assignments while doing the race. Timing was not great. I'm definitely doing it again. I learned a lot about myself. One was that I can push myself, obviously, to a certain limit for short periods of time. The other was I used to, before this race, and it's ironic because I travel so much, but I used to get really nervous about traveling, especially traveling by myself, because like, I'm going to miss the flight. They're going to stop me at customs or whatever. I'm going to be tearing it. I don't know. Like I just always had these kind of worst case delivery things going through my head. And during a race, you obviously don't have time to think about these things. You're just like competitive try to meet all of the stuff so yeah it got me over that pretty quickly but it was just fun like it's something completely out of who does that right (laughs) if anybody asks you just say yes (laughs) do you feel that having gone and done so many different things that you have found your why i don't know if i fully found it but i feel like i'm getting closer to it i know in my heart that i am so passionate about creating change and enabling other people to do that. And in particular, just reducing inefficiency. I think when you look at the nonprofit world, I always get annoyed at it because of obviously all the things going on there, the bureaucracy, funding, all that kind of stuff. And then you look at the corporate world and I get really annoyed at that because it's just like 
purely for one purpose, profit-driven, and often at the expense of everything else. But I think there's a fundamental issue, and that is that when people think about business, they automatically think that it's a bad thing. It's like, where did that concept come from? Why is business a bad thing? Business actually has the most amount of impact. If you're looking at just bringing people together in communities or employing people. So yeah, I'm really passionate about finding more sustainable, scalable ways for creating you. Or what kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I've been thinking about that a lot because I've started another side project, which is recording videos for my future self, maybe my children or whoever in a hundred years time wants to watch my videos. They can do that. But legacy, I think, haven't quite figured out what, what that is. I know I want to make a mark on this world in some way. I know I don't need recognition for it. Like if I'm looking at success, becoming famous or anything like that, it's not on my priority. But I think knowing that I did something good and I left the world in a better place. And what do you think are the most important qualities of a successful person? Ooh, adaptability. <laughs> Being willing to change from myself. Obviously, I've changed a lot in terms of literally all the careers <laughs> that I've had. If you look at my resume, I probably wouldn't get hired. From the organization, she jumps around too much. She never stays in one place. Yeah, I think adaptability is really important. In particular, like right now, our world is changing so quickly. If we just look at COVID for an example, as an example, how quickly that spread around the world, how quickly everything changed in terms of doing business, you know, forming relationships with people. I think it's a huge skill set that should not be underestimated and probably something we need to embrace each love kids away because the world is only going to change a lot quicker. Technologies are new already. And then Apart from adaptability, I think the other thing would be just being willing to learn. And where can people go to connect with you, find out what you're doing, and also Accelerating Asia? So for Accelerating Asia, if you're a startup that wants to go through our program, you could check out the application form and everything there as well. And if you're an investor that wants to invest in these startups, come talk to us as well. We're happy to give you deal flow. We're also on all the socials. For myself, you can check out doing good podcast stuff. I also have my own website. I'm also on all the socials. So. <laughs> and that was the end of episode 56. The show notes and transcript can be found at sothismywhy.com forward slash 56. I'll sign a link to subscribe to the weekly newsletter for this podcast. And stay tuned for next Sunday because we will be meeting the former head of post-production at The Conan Show on life in Hollywood and what it takes to succeed in the late night scene in LA. If you enjoyed the previous episode we had with Nick Bernstein, who is the current executive in charge of The Late Show of James Corden, then you'll probably enjoy hearing from a different perspective of someone who's also in late night in post-production. Want to learn more? See you next Sunday.